Good morning. Father's Day always reminds me of uh, God's sovereignty, trusting in God. I was recently at uh, my nephew, my nephew's birthday party. My nephew just turned 22. And I was looking at him and I go, hmm, that's how old my father was when he chose to marry my mother who had a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And I go, that's just crazy. I mean, the perspective there, my nephew, just graduating from college, he's all, and my dad took on a six-year-old and a four-year-old. He, he, in, a, in, a, in a sense, I mean, this was not a godly union at the time, but in a sense, he rescued us. You know, we were, we were in a lot of trouble, just my mom and my brother and I struggling. And uh, my father came, my new father, and he rescued us. And that's really what God does for us. We're in a lot of trouble, and we're going to focus again, not the final time, but the final time in this section of Romans on the, the trouble that we were in until God came and rescued us. This morning, we come to the final verses of this first section in the book of Romans. As we've talked about, from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, which is where we get today, the Apostle Paul has been driving home this fact that he summarizes in Romans 3, 9, and 10. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. The natural state of humanity is one of enslavement to sin and unrighteousness. Now, why did Paul, we, we talked about this when we first started this journey through this section, I don't know, 15 weeks ago maybe. Why did Paul spend so much time, uh, remember we talked about 74 verses, 17% of the entire letter to show this truth, to show our unrighteousness. I think there are two main reasons. First, he wants us to understand, to really understand, the seriousness and the consequences of sin. He wants to be clear that sin leads to death and destruction and ruin and misery and pain and suffering. He wants us to feel the terrible impact of sin in our lives and in our world. And he wants us to know beyond any doubt that for those who remain in this state of sinful unrighteousness, that they will face the wrath of God. He wants everyone to feel the weight of that first verse of this section, Romans 1.18, knowing that it applies to all, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So first, Paul wants us to know the seriousness and the consequences of our sin, specifically that because of our unrighteousness, we are destined to receive, to face, to come under the wrath of God. And, or, or but second, he wants a sinful, unrighteous humanity to see their great need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, which he summarized right before we got into this section, he gave us the gospel first. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's the gospel that declares that Jesus Christ has entered our world. That Jesus Christ has lived 
a sinless life, and that Jesus Christ went to the cross as a substitute, as a sacrifice for our sins. It's the Gospel that has the the power to save those who believe from the wrath of God. Because it's the Gospel that reveals the righteousness of God. It's the Gospel that transforms those who have faith from a place of unrighteousness to a place of righteousness before God. So Romans 1, 18-320, this first section that we'll finish today, is really a preparation for the Gospel that's to come. Paul, showing, uh, Paul, by showing the sin and unrighteousness of all humanity, is preparing us to receive the gospel, which is what the rest of the book of Romans, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3, is all about. So as we come to these final verses of this first section, it's my prayer that, that our hearts will be prepared for the joy to come. That by seeing our great need for the gospel, will grow in a a deeper love for God who who provided the gospel, that will rejoice in the finished work of Jesus Christ who who is the gospel, and that will become people who proclaim the truth of this glorious message of salvation and transformation in our world. So now we come to the final verses of this first section. Paul ends uh, this preparation for the gospel by describing, interestingly enough, the purpose of the law. It's as, it's as if someone is saying to Paul, okay, you've shown us that all humanity, Jews and Gentiles, unrighteous before God. Remember last week, no one seeks God, no one understands, no one does anything right. You've said that the Jews who received the Mosaic law were no better off than the Gentiles who received only the, the moral law. Remember we talked about the moral law. That both groups, Jews and Gentiles, would be judged based on their obedience to the law that they received. So then, if that's true, what's the purpose of the Mosaic Law? Why did God give the law to the Jews if it doesn't result in their righteousness? And first Paul says, number one, the law removes our excuses. The law removes our excuses. Verse 19 begins, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. The law here is typically, uh, what's typically the case in Romans, refers specifically to the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was given to the Jews, therefore the Jews are under the law. They will be judged, we've talked about this, based on their obedience or disobedience to the law. So in the beginning of verse 19, Paul is saying that the law, uh, what the law says, it speaks to the Jews who are under the law. But then in the second part of verse 19, Paul applies this truth about what the law says to the Jews to all people. The law speaks to the Jews who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Not just Jewish mouths, but all mouths will be stopped. We'll talk about how Paul applies, goes from the the Jews being under the law to applying that to everyone when we get to our next point because there are sort of two things involved there. So hold on there. But first, let's look at uh, what he means by the law causing every mouth to be stopped. He means that, that when anyone, no matter who they are, when anyone stands before God, when anyone faces judgment for their sin, there's nothing, nothing they can say. There are no excuses. Humanity will be speechless before God. Why? Because of the law. 
Because the law reveals God's will for humanity. The law prescribes. It details how we are to live. It reveals what sin is and what sin is not. And even though we have the law, we everyone continues to violate it. We continue to sin, therefore every mouth will be stopped. No mouth anywhere in the world. Not my mouth, not your mouth, not the mouth of the, the tribesman in Indonesia or the professor in America. No mouth will be able to say anything when God pronounces judgment upon them. No one will be able to make an excuse for their sin. No one will say, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that was wrong. No one will claim, oh, I, I thought I was doing the right thing there. Paul is saying that because of the law, there is no valid excuse for our sin. How often, though, when we sin, that we try to make excuses. This is just, uh, I think, who we are in many ways. Even when we know what we're doing is wrong. Even when we know the law. And when we know God's Word condemns what we're doing, we still seek to make excuses. Oh, you just don't understand my circumstances. If you only knew what I've went through. I'm just a product of my environment, uh, my culture. Or, or that's just the way God made me. It's my personality. That's just the way I am. I, I must confess that this last one, it, it, I use it quite often. Just the other day, I was confronted with, with my own sin, sin of hypocrisy. I was, I was talking about how I hated it when people complained. Somebody had been complaining, and, and I, I, was, I was complaining about their complaining. Okay, whatever. And the person I was talking to bravely said, uh, but you complain all the time. And my response was not, oh, yeah, you're right. Let me repent. Let me, let me pray here and repent of that sin of not only complaining, but hypocrisy. My response was, uh, you don't understand. It's just my personality. I'm not really complaining. I'm just trying to, to get a good laugh. You know, it's, it's my way of, hu- it's my humor. Don't we often, when we get confronted with our sin, either, either by uh, another person or the Spirit of God is confronting us, and we begin to make excuses. Now, this isn't an excuse, by the way, but we come by our excuse-making naturally. We see it from the very beginning. It's kind of uh, interesting, actually. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were given what? They were given one law to obey, right? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they ate... And when God confronted Adam with the sin, he blamed Eve and he blamed God. He made excuses. The man said, the woman whom you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. My spouse made me do it. That's a good one. God made me do it. You gave her to me and she, she did it. And when Eve was confronted with her sin, she gave the most famous excuse of all. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. These excuses for sin were not valid then. They are not valid now. And they will not be valid when we stand before God. Because the law removes our excuses. We know what we're doing is wrong. And second, the law reveals our guilt. Verse 19 continues, And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Again, not the Jewish world, but the whole world may be held accountable to God. That phrase, to be held accountable, also means to be, to be found guilty. The whole world will be found guilty before God. Why? Again, because of the law. 
The law prescribes details how our Creator created us to live. uh, God says in His law what to do to do this, to not to do that. And even though we have the law, we, humanity, continues to violate it, continue to sin. And therefore, we are accountable to God. We are guilty before God. Now, if God hadn't given the law, if He just, you know, popped us out here, no, no guidance, no nothing, then we might have a case. You know, we, we could possibly plead ignorance for our sins, right? But because God has revealed His law, we are without excuse. We are accountable to God. We're guilty before God. It's like, it's like being a student uh, during final exams. How many, how many, do we have students who just took some final exams? Yeah, graded some or some graders of final exams. So we know we've been there. How many have taken final exams? We've all been there. If you look at a final exam, you sit down in that chair, you got your, what was that, blue book, right? Ooh, it's been a while. And then the exam, and the exam is filled with things, uh, questions that the teacher never covered, that weren't in the book. Then when you fail, you have a case, right? You have an excuse of never being taught the material. Liam, when you give a final exam, it's on the things you've taught, right? I can't ever get a straight answer from this guy. But if when you look at the exam uh, and it's filled with things the teacher and the book covered over and over again, and if you weren't paying attention, uh, were, were unwilling to study, just didn't care or didn't believe it mattered, believed you could wing it, when you fail, you have no excuse. You are guilty. You will deserve your judgment. You will deserve your uh, F. And in a similar way, because the law, because God has given us a book to study, even if we don't pay attention to it, are unwilling to study it, don't care about it, maybe don't even believe it matters, when we fail, when we sin, we have no excuse. We are guilty before God. We will deserve His judgment. We will deserve the wrath of God. But wait a second. Now we return to the question. If Paul is talking about the Mosaic law, then shouldn't this only apply to Jews? Why does he say everyone? Why does he say the whole world? How does this apply to Gentiles? How does the law remove the excuses and reveal the guilt of Gentiles who may have never heard of the law, read the law, seen the law? Couldn't a a Gentile, maybe that Indonesian tribesman we talked about, uh, who never received or heard of the law say to God, I'm not guilty. You can't judge me. I have an excuse. You didn't give me this law of Moses. I didn't know what sin was and what it wasn't. Now Paul's already answered this question partially back in chapter 2 verse 14 where he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So part of the answer to why Gentiles don't have an excuse is, is uh, why they're guilty before God, even though they didn't have the law of Moses, is that they are all law to themselves. We talked about this several weeks ago, how God has placed on every human heart, every human being, the sense of morality, the sense of right and wrong. And every human being, Jew, Gentile, violates that sense of their own sense of right and wrong. 
We know what is right, and yet we do what is wrong. We've already seen that the Gentiles who didn't receive the Mosaic Law will not be judged based on the Mosaic Law. Instead, they will be judged based on their own conscience, based on the moral law of God written in their hearts. It might look something like this. Just my own personal uh, speculation here. When a person on Judgment Day stands before God, God might say, okay, Gabriel, roll tape A. And tape A will be a recording of that person yelling at someone, condemning someone for doing something wrong. Maybe lying, for example. You're such a terrible person. Why did you tell that horrendous lie? I hate lying. I hate liars. They should be severely punished. And then God might say, okay, you certainly knew that lying was wrong. Gabriel, roll tape B. And tape B will be a recording of the same person telling a a whopper, some humongous lie. And God will say, you are a law unto yourself. Your own words and actions condemn you. So this is part of the answer to why Gentiles who do not have the law have no excuse and are guilty before God because they are a law to themselves. But also, I think in Romans 3.19, I think Paul is making a further point. He's saying that the fact that the Jews were given the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament Law, and the fact that they continually violated it removes everyone's excuse and shows the guilt of the whole world. His logic, I think, is this. The Jews, who were God's special covenant people, they couldn't keep the Mosaic Law. Then it follows that Gentiles, who can't even keep the the law unto themselves, the moral law, would certainly not have been able to keep the Mosaic Law either. It's like God chose the Jews as a representative of humanity. They 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 were put in the best possible circumstances. Given many advantages. Remember, we we talked about some of those. God chose them. He made a covenant with them. He revealed Himself to them. He was their God. He gave them His law, His truth, His will. They had the owner's manual. But even with all these advantages, they failed to keep the law. They proved to be under the power of sin. They proved to be unrighteous. Therefore, because the Jews failed to keep the law, Mosaic Law, and because the Gentiles failed to keep the moral law, it's logical to say that no one, Jew or Gentile, would be able to keep the Mosaic Law. That makes sense? Okay, let me see. Just give a, a little illustration. Maybe this will help. Maybe it won't. If it doesn't, forget it. Uh, suppose we were all, now this is a big suppose, we were all candidates to get into the NBA the National Basketball Association. But before we could be drafted, we had to drastically improve our free throw shooting. In fact, because we were lacking in so many other areas, we had to get, be able to shoot free throws 100% of the time, never missing. Now further suppose that someone came and chose one of us, maybe the, the best, the one with the current highest free throw percentage from among us, and he took that person and he trained them. Uh, he gave them all the basketball advantages, the best equipment that money could buy, a weight training program, a special diet, instructed them specific instructions on the best way to shoot free throws. But even after many months, 
that person still missed many of their free throws. Yes, they improved, but they still failed to make 100%. And they were the best of us. In fact, they didn't even get close. I think it would be logical to assume that because the chosen one failed, that none of us would have done any better. And in the same way, because the Jews, the chosen ones, failed, it's logical to assume that all people would have failed. Therefore, all are without excuse. The whole world is guilty before God. I am guilty. You are guilty. Everybody in your family is guilty. Uh, Everyone you go to school with, everyone in your workplace, every one of your neighbors is guilty. All seven billion people around the world are guilty before God. And the law makes that oh so clear. So we've seen two things that the law does. First, the law removes our excuses. Second, the law reveals our guilt. Now the third purpose of the law isn't necessarily a purpose. It's what the law it's not what the law does, it's what the law does not do. Number three, the law cannot justify anyone. Verse twenty begins For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. That word justified means to be made righteous, to be made right before God. And and Paul says that no human being will be made right before God by the works of the law, by keeping the law. Why? Uh, Back to what he's just said, back to what we've been studying for the past many weeks. Because all humanity, Jews and Gentiles, fail to keep the Mosaic or the moral law. All humanity fails to obey God. The fact that no one can keep the law means that no one will be made right by the law. No one will be justified by the law. The law's purpose is not to make us right with God because it cannot. Now we need to be clear, uh, the fact that the law cannot make us right with God is not the law's fault. God's law is good and right. It's given by God to His people. So what's the problem? Why is the law powerless to justify In Romans 8.3, Paul answers that question. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, There's a lot of stuff there. It gives us some insight into the Gospel even. The Gospel of Jesus Christ does what the law cannot do. It condemns sin in the flesh. But what I want us to see in this verse uh, right now, is the specific reason that the law can't make us right with God. The problem isn't the law itself. Paul says that the law is weakened by, by what? By the flesh. The law is weakened by our sinful nature. It's not the law that's the problem. It's our inability to keep the law that's the problem. It's like, it's like giving a shovel to a two-year-old and telling them to dig a six-foot hole. It's not the shovel's fault that the two-year-old is too weak to dig the hole. And it's not the law's fault that we're too weak to, to keep it, to obey it. But the truth remains, because in our flesh we have no ability to keep the law, therefore no one is going to be made right before God by the law. The law cannot justify anyone. Instead, number four, the law shows our sinful heart. The law shows our sinful heart. This is the final sort of purpose of the law here. Look at verse 20. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what does Paul mean by this? You might think that he, that he only means that the law tells us about sin. And it does. If you read the law, then you will have the knowledge of what sin is. You'll know what God condemns, what God condones. 
The law teaches us what sin is and shows us how to live and how not to live. The law says, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, and so on. If that's the case, then then all Paul means is since through the law comes the knowledge of what sin is. The definition of sin. But I don't think that's all he means. Notice the word since. That means that uh, the end of verse verse 20, the, the second half of verse 20, follows from the beginning of verse 20. So let's read the whole verse together. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I think Paul is saying more than just the law teaches us right from wrong. He's saying that the law shows us our sin. It reveals, it gives us knowledge of our sin. It it shows forth our own sinful heart. The law makes it clear that we are sinners by nature. We see this in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if I had not... If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. This is the same thing Paul's saying in Romans 3.20. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. For, he continues, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But, and this is the key part, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produces in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. That is, sin lies to a large degree dormant or unrecognized. Romans 3.20 says that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. How so? Well, when the law is made known to the sinful heart, when we become aware of the law, the effect is that it shows the rebellion in our hearts. It reveals our rebellion against God against God and His law. It shows our sin nature. It's like a boy who's happily walking down a road. I mean, picture a boy going down a road. Maybe it's a country road. Kicking a can. He has no desire. The, the road is straight. He's having fun. He's kicking the can. The can's staying within the road. He has no desire to go to the left or to the right until he glances over and sees a no trespassing sign. Then sin Seizing an opportunity through the commandment, no trespassing produces in the boy the desire to do what it is. Oh, I wonder what's over there. I wonder what they're trying to keep me away from. Through the sign, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. Suddenly, what was lying dormant in his heart is shown to really be there. The desire to go and do what is forbidden. So it is with the law. It stirs up uh, resistance in the human heart. It doesn't just teach us about sin, it shows us our sin nature. So we've seen the purpose, the purpose, purposes of the law and the implication for us, for humanity. Uh, let me just review. The law removes our excuses. Therefore, no one, uh, when you stand before God, will be able to argue when he pronounces judgment. No one will have an excuse. The law also reveals our guilt. Therefore, everyone is guilty before God. Everyone, no matter who you are, deserves the wrath of God. The law cannot justify. Therefore, no one will be made right with God based on their own ability to keep the law, to do what is right, to do good works. It's not within our power to do that. 
And finally, the law shows our sinful heart. Therefore, all people are prone to rebel against God and His law. We see it in society and we see it in our hearts. And that's how Paul concludes these 74 verses on humanity's unrighteousness. 74 verses of of pretty bad news. But it's there to prepare our hearts for the good news. To prepare our hearts for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as we conclude this morning, as we've done many times throughout our study of this uh, sin and unrighteousness, we need to take a glimpse. We need to briefly jump over and consider the gospel. I want us to consider the impact of the gospel on sin and unrighteousness. As we think back through these 74 verses, let's think about what is the gospel, how does the gospel impact humanity's sin and unrighteousness. And we don't have to look far, we just step down to the next verse, because this is where Paul starts. Verses 21, 21 and 22, we'll be looking at those in more detail next week. Paul makes this major shift. He turns from the problem of humanity's uh, unrighteousness to the solution for humanity's un- I feel so much more comfortable when I get here. This is so much better. He turns to the gospel. He's been speaking about the purpose of the law, and so he writes, but, I mean, my favorite word in the Bible is but, because it always, you know, great stuff comes after that. Here's the bad stuff, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. He's basically said, uh, you're all unrighteous, but the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God has now, in Christ Jesus, been manifested, has been seen apart from the law. The law cannot justify. The law cannot make us right with God. However, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, does bear witness to the righteousness of God. We should have seen it in the Old Testament. It's all pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the gospel. The gospel's impact on unrighteousness is that it turns it to righteousness. Through faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness is given to those who believe, to those who are unrighteous, because that's everyone, and yet believe, have faith, trust in Jesus Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then you've been freed from the power of sin. We talked about this last week. You've been removed from under sin. When you stand before God, get this, you will not need to make any excuses because you will not be guilty. You'll be justified. You'll be right before God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but as I consider my own sin, my own unrighteousness, after seeing it reflected again and again in these 74 verses in Romans, and then as I think of Jesus Christ going to the cross, paying for my sin on that cross, as I dwell on being transformed by God from unrighteous to righteous, I'm overwhelmed with humility and gratitude. Humility and gratitude for for being chosen by God to receive His righteousness. Nothing I could do. Remember last week, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
as I read and I studied, thought and prayed about, not just about humanity's unrighteousness, but my own unrighteousness, I, I saw myself in these 74 verses. I saw my own sin and, and my own unrighteousness. I saw who I was and who I would have been without Christ. And over and over, uh, this famous phrase kept coming into my head. Maybe you've thought of it uh, along the way as well. It is, there but for the grace of God go I. Without the grace of God given to me through Christ Jesus, these 74 verses, the description of humanity's sin and unrighteousness, the description of God's wrath falling upon all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of, of men, would be a description of me, would be a description of you. And so I would ask you uh, and myself, first and foremost this morning and for the rest of our life, uh, to fall on your knees, literally or figuratively, and thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For His grace in your life. That through Jesus Christ, you have been rescued from God's wrath and given God's righteousness. Realize and live in this overwhelming good news. Give your life to the one who rescued you from sin and unrighteousness. So first, consider the impact of the gospel has had in delivering you from a life of sin and unrighteousness and delivering you from the wrath of God, from the eternal wrath of God. And then, once you maybe bask in, oh my God, what you saved me from. Consider the impact that the gospel can have that same impact that the gospel can have on those in our world who are still living in sin and unrighteousness. Think about what we saw today just in these two verses. These two of the 74. For those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ, when they stand before God, they will have no excuse. No excuse for their sin. Speechless. They'll be fully accountable to God for every sin they ever committed. They'll be guilty before God. Nothing they've done in their lives, no amount of so-called obedience or good works will bring about their justification. They will not be right before God. They will be wrong, sinful, unrighteous before God. Their sinful hearts will be fully revealed. And they'll face the terrible, just, eternal wrath of God. And their only hope, the only way for them to be made righteous, the only way to escape the wrath of God, is the same way you, Christian, escape the wrath of God. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that has to impact our hearts. That has to impact our minds. That has to impact our hands and our feet. That that truth about the nature of the gospel and what the gospel is intended to do has to flip a switch with regards to how we spend our lives. How we spend our time and our treasures and our talents. Once we've seen uh, the sin and unrighteousness of humanity, our own sin and unrighteousness, once we know that without Christ all people are destined to receive the wrath wrath of God, we have to see just how important it is for us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't it just make sense that those who've been made righteous by the gospel 
If you've been made righteous by the gospel, then I'm talking to you, I'm talking to me. Doesn't it make sense that we would be called by God to then go and proclaim that righteousness, that gospel to those who, who are now where we were? To our friends who are without excuse? To our family who's guilty before God? To our neighbors who are subject to their own sinful hearts? To our unrighteous world that has no hope of being justified, made right, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ? As those who've been saved from the wrath of God, who've been made righteous by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is certainly, it is definitely our duty and our obligation to proclaim the gospel to an unrighteous world. But it's my prayer, it's my prayer that God will transform our hearts. That as we consider the grace and the love and the mercy and the righteousness we've received from Him, that proclaiming the gospel would become not just our duty, but our passion and our joy. Recently, I, I watched a, I think it was just a, a uh, what's that called? Trailer? Preview of a, of a video. And uh, it begins, uh, it's, the video is called, we're going to watch this at our mission conference, so prep here, the insanity of God. But the, 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 the trailer begins with this. Uh, it says that 90% of Christians, 90% of those who claim to be Christians who grew up in the church, who go to church regularly, 90% have never shared their faith with another person. OMG, okay, I'm sorry. How, how can that be? That's maybe one of the saddest things I've ever heard. And, and, and I, let me just say this, as I reflect on my own life, I, I've certainly shared the gospel, but not as much as I should have. So I'm thinking of myself as, where, as well. And so uh, this morning, uh, if God is calling you not to become an evangelist, not to be Billy Graham, he's, he's Pat, Greg Laurie just had a Gloria, where's Gloria? Gloria was in Arizona at a Harvest Crusade. God is not calling you. I'm not saying God is calling you to be an evangelist. But if this morning, if you are sensing a greater, God is calling you to a greater commitment of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in your world, I would ask that you signify that. You know, that you would just stand up. Not not for... uh, am I saying it? Not for me, but for you and before God, that you would stand where you are and that I could just pray for us. I could just pray for us that we would understand in a better way our unrighteousness, our sinfulness, how we were delivered from that and how now we're called to take that gospel, the same thing that delivered us into the world. If you'd like to be used by God, to proclaim his message of salvation from sin and unrighteousness, then stand where you are, just even now, and let me just pray for us. Lord God, I I come into your presence and I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for Christ. We use the word gospel and it means so much. It means Jesus Life and death, it means our sin forgiven, it means grace and love and mercy, it means so much. Lord, and I pray for myself and I pray for each person here that we would understand 
what we've been given in the gospel. That we would understand the love of God has fallen upon us. That we would understand that we've received the gospel. That we are no longer under sin. That we have been made righteous by you, Lord. And that would propel us. That would excite us. That would give us joy and passion to tell others about you. Not having all the answers, that's not it. But to tell others what you've done in our life. What your word says you've done and what you've done in our life. I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that we would be a people willing to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your precious name I pray. Amen.